So I, I think it's hard to be a passive investor here in the index. And I'd be looking around for a different strategy that had the potential to deliver better returns. I don't know whether you want to be in the meme stocks or the crypto or other stuff like that. I, I think that value probably is a safer, more sensible, surer path to some reasonable prospect of returns over the next decade. It's not that value is so spectacular here. It's just that everything else is so expensive or silly that you kind of, by process of elimination, you, find yourself, you should find yourself in value. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we're happy to have back Tobias Carlisle, founder of the Acquires Funds and author of top value investing books, including the Acquires Multiple, Deep Value, and others. Of course, we talked to Toby about value stocks, how he thinks about combining quality and value, the macro backdrop and investing environment, lessons he's learned in managing an ETF for the past few years, and a few non-investing topics like podcasting, given his success he's had with his podcast. It's a good discussion with a great guy. Please enjoy this talk with Acquires Funds' Toby Carlisle. Hey, Toby, how are you? Hey, fellas. Great to see you again. Thanks for coming back. I think you're the first, uh, second time uh, guest on the podcast. and um... I'm honored. I'm deeply honored. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, we're already 100 episodes sort of uh, into this, partly because your uh, motivation here. So, you know, I just want to kind of get together and hook up uh, mid-summer, sort of get some um, updates from you and just talk a little bit more about sort of what's going on in the market and um, some of the exciting stuff I think you're you're working on. Um, to start, I, I want to uh, sort of ask you a little bit about your experiences, at least so far, in running and building out what has been, you know, a pretty successful um, ETF at this point. Um, and so I think you're two years with the main fund that you you manage. Um, you know, I guess what is what is what has gone well in your mind, and maybe what what are some areas that maybe you're sort of surprised about that uh, are different than what you may have, may have expected when you launched the fund? Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, the fund, the main fund, is a long, short, deep value uh, fund focused in the U.S. called the Acquirers Fund, and the ticker for that is ZIG. And um, the 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 focus of it is deeply undervalued stocks long and then stuff that has a um, you know shorts that we can find that really they have no value but besides that they seem to have uh, they've got some statistical financial distress risks statistical earnings manipulation statistical indications of fraud and when you couple that with the fact that they uh, they're burning cash and they are typically they carry debt it creates this need for them to raise some financing at some point. And I think that's a pretty good catalyst for a big drop in the share price. So we're trying to get in front of those things. And then on the long side, it's it's very, very simple, old school kind of deep value, which is, you know, make sure it's got a solid balance sheet, a pretty good history of uh, earnings that transfer into cash flow, and then management's doing something with it to take advantage of the fact that the, the undervaluation exists. So they're buying back some stock, um, paying a little dividend, maybe paying, paying down some debt, all of those things that 
uh, over time will incrementally grow the value of the, the shareholding on a per share basis. Uh, the, the, the period that we've that I've been running it has been kind of interesting because it started out May 2019. I thought that the value spread, which is the, the difference between the most undervalued and the most overvalued, um, was as wide as it had been in the data, which is kind of extraordinary because it, that includes, of course, the 2000 spread, which was very, very wide. And I thought that the risk, I thought at that stage, was sort of missing those jaws closing, which they will do at some point. It's sort of inevitable. That's always been the case in the past. And so I, I was trying to get it out as fast as I possibly could. So it arrived May 2019. As it's happened, for that almost that entire period, the, the, the value spread continued to widen, which is uh, doubly bad if you're both long and short, the, both sides of those jaws. So it's, it, it impacted us a little bit. But, um, you know, March 2020 looked like that might be the turning point. It's sort of historically the... The time when value does a little bit better. No, it turns out that that wasn't a good time because uh, value got sold harder than anything else, and uh, the uh, the growthiest stuff seemed to be the stuff that did the best out of that. And that that continued until about September, when uh, at least the the spread stopped widening, and then it seems to have closed up. And it's since September 2020 through to about. Um, March this year, which is about six months, it was this glorious period where value actually seemed to work. And since then, we've gone backwards a little bit. Um, values just the spread has widened up. I don't think that that is unprecedented, and I, I fully expect that value keeps on working from here. But I think that if you go back and have a look at what happened in the late 1990s and 2000, there was this initial crack in the dot com stuff where it all sold off pretty heavily, like we saw with the the, the dot-com 2.0 this time around. And it almost rallied all the way back to its all-time high. It didn't quite get there. And then it went into that sort of legendary collapse that we all remember. And value then worked very well out of that. So I, I, when I look at the portfolios as a whole, and I'm not just talking about my own portfolios, I'm talking about value portfolios more generally. To me, they all look like they are unusually cheap and unusually high quality, plenty of cash. So the things that are traditionally in value portfolios have been, you know, so you might find a gold miner in there. And gold miners, as an example, have all got religion, you know, 10 or 11 years ago when the gold price was exploding in 2011, when the gold price sort of peaked, all those gold miners looked, they were getting a little bit junky at that point because it was so easy to make money. But it's been a decade now of, uh, of them not making any money. So they've all paid down their debt. The balance sheets look much better. They've tended to buy back stock. They're converting what they sell into cash flow, which, you know, value goes. We all like to see that sort of stuff. And I think that that's a pretty good example. That's a microcosm of what's happened in value generally, that they've all been so starved of capital that they've all become much better. Or the ones that have survived have become much better businesses. And so I like the, I really like the long portfolios and I think the short portfolios are looking pretty junky. So I feel very positive about the way that the portfolios look, the way that I always think about it is there's two elements to it, right? There's the yield side and then there's the, the reinvestment growth. And on both of those fronts, the yields are unusually high. I think yields across the portfolio are, are sort of 50 to 100% higher than that's the, that's the uh, Chamath, Chamath math. They're like two and a half percent versus like, you know, one and a half percent or 1.25% on a yield front plus a buyback, which adds another point or two on top of that. And then the reinvestment rate, they're all, 
the, the, the earnings are being reinvested at a rate that seems to be generating a higher return than the growthiest stuff because the growthiest stuff, you know, not a lot of that top line falls through to the bottom line. So I think the portfolios without a re-rating in the multiple look really strong. And so I, I think that the, the next five or 10 years, whatever happens in the next 12 months, flip a coin, but five or 10 years, I think are very good for value. One of the things I really appreciate and value about your fund and the way you're able to articulate it is, you know, what the strategy is. It's very understandable. It makes a lot of sense. I think that's very important for, you know, investors, especially being able to stick with a strategy over the long run and get the most of it. And what's interesting about that spread is, you know, you're right, like value started to come back. But when you look on a chart of the actual reversion, it's like, you know, you may have had down, down, down and growth going up and then value came back for six months and it's like a little tiny dot. It's a pimple. <laughs> yeah, it's like, here we go, we're gonna start. And, and you know, I, I kind of was, I was more, and I was wrong. I was like, I was kind of drinking the inflation Kool-Aid and maybe it's still coming, I don't know. The market seems to be like discounting that now, but I was thinking, you know, with all these price increases, I, I know some of them wouldn't necessarily continue at the rate they were going, but I was like, okay, here we go. You know, inflation's coming, you know, stronger, quicker, more aggressively than we expected it. The Fed's going to move and, you know, that's going to be kind of good for value stocks. And then, you know, the 10 year starts to just sort of go down. And I was like, oh, well, here we go again. But yeah, I'm definitely in the inflation is here camp rather than the inflationist transitory camp. But I, I think that that, uh, we, you know, we, there, there are lots of examples of it happening, like lumber rocketed. And then lumber got to a price that it had never been to before. And lumber is one of those commodities that, because the people who are the end users of lumber tend to be people who are building a house or people who are building furniture and stuff like that. You know, that's a, you have some flexibility about when you build your house for the most part, you don't want to be paying peak prices. You've got a fixed amount of money to, to put towards your house. And if the lumber price gets too high, you say, oh, well, we're doing that next year or we're doing, we've got to keep on saving up to do that. So lumber, is one of those commodities where high prices really is the cure for high prices. And so I think that that's what happened when it got so expensive that people just put it off and so it's fallen back. But the underlying drivers of higher lumber prices, for example, seem to be still there. And so I would say that lumber keeps on running. You know, pick a commodity. Energy has been similarly starved of reinvestment because, you know, it had that famously got under uh, zero last year, which I didn't know was possible for, for a commodity, but no, nobody wanted to take delivery of that contract because there was no storage. And so the world is in this funny place where we had, uh, we completely stopped uh, business for a little while there and everybody collected all of their receivables, made all of their payables and then sat for three months trying to work out what was going to happen. And then when it looked like it was back to business, they all of a sudden just tried to jumpstart the entire world economy all at the same time. And that's created all of these funny effects, lumber shooting up and energy going haywire and gold popping up, any commodity that you can think of. And so I think that um, that has created the argument for the, the transitory inflation folks can look at that and they say, well, look year on year, like a year ago, we were coming off such a low base and now we're at a pretty high base and that that's ridiculous, right? We're not going to continue on at that rate. But I think that the underlying drivers of inflation are definitely there. So the question is, as an investor in fixed income, you know, the 10-year, the 10-year took off and 
probably your value portfolios, like my value portfolios, looked a lot better when the 10-year got a little bit higher up. And then when the 10-year reversed course, like the 10-year got to what, 1.7 something percent, and it's backed off to, I think it was under 1.2 last time I looked. Historically, of course, it's been around 6%. Over the last 12 months, it's been as low as 0.5%. Wherever it is in that sort of 1.7 to, to below, I think that's probably got to be below the natural rate of inflation. So the real return on that 10-year is negative. And the question is, how long will bond investors stick around and earn a negative real return on those things? I wouldn't think they'd do that for very long. I get that the 10 years, like a, um, it's a hedge. It's sort of a safety place that tends to run up when when the world gets nasty, people run into the 10-year and it tends to be sort of counter-cyclical in that sense. And the fact that it was running back might have indicated that people were getting more comfortable with the world. But I still think that ultimately somebody's got to hold those things and I don't know how long they're going to hold them at a negative real rate. So I think that they probably have to float back up. And some of the analysis that I've seen of people who are specialists in those groups is that they say the that it was largely at sort of technical, uh, you know, people had moved into it they had to rebalance and so that was what caused the sell-off from 1.7 down to 1.2 but they think fair value for it is closer to 1.5 and at the end of the year they thought 1.95 now i don't know you know everybody's i don't know how good these uh, fixed income guys at prognostications equity guys would sort of you'd be laughed out of the house if you if you said something like that but Maybe they know what they're talking about. Maybe it runs back to 1.95. I'm certainly cheering for it to go back in that direction. I hope so. And, and you know, that if inflation picks up, then it's probably got to go back that way. Just in your, and you know, if you don't have an opinion on this, it's, it's okay. Or if, you're, if, you, if you haven't talked to any investors where you get the sense. But it, the question I wanted to ask is, do you think that, you know, the pandemic has made investors um, more open to active strategies, whereas, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, they were you know, mostly passive. I mean, from your conversations with investors, are you sensing that at all? Or is it is it kind of not? Is it the same um, as before? Yeah, I, I don't know. I tend to, I talk to mostly, I talk to value guys who for the most part are active uh, for the obvious reasons that you can put together a portfolio that looks better than the S&P 500 or, you know, the, the worldwide portfolio, whatever your preference is. And I, I certainly, you know, I think about just the, the little model that I was talking about before on a yield and a reinvestment basis. I think that you can pretty simply put together a better portfolio than the S&P 500. The funny thing that's happened in the market over the last 12 to 15 months, I guess, has been that explosion in uh, Robin Hood type folks who are trading actively in the market i guess they were home with nothing to do and they had some stimulus money and the stimmy went straight into the straight into the market and it's blown up crypto and it's blown up some really odd stuff like amc ran to the moon and before that it was uh what's the uh gamestop gamestop ran to the moon all hilarious because gamestop was like the cheapest thing in my little deep value screen about two years ago and uh mike burry picked up some some GameStop, and I said, you know, Mike Burry's, Mike, Mike Burry's still got it after it had run up like fifty percent. This is well before any of the any of the silliness, uh, before it became a meme stock. And then uh, I, I just got shouted down on Twitter because you know Burry's an idiot and uh, GameStop's garbage. 
And then it caught that meme stock magic and it went to the absolute moon. And now it's still, it's crazy. It's like, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's still like a 10 or $15 billion valuation. And it was at $400 million not that long ago. So it's been, it's been fun to watch. I kind of think that that's what's driving it. There's, it's the, uh, there's more gamble in the market than I have seen in a really long period of time. There are people in there swinging for the fences in options and crypto and all this sort of silly stuff. Do they want to be passive investors? I don't think so. Is that where the bulk of the money is? I don't know. That, that might just be sort of the marginal buyer and seller kind of pushing the market around. But you've got to think that when you look at the, you look at, like take the S&P 500, for example, if you use the um, Schiller PE, it's at 38 and a half, 39, which is historically very, very expensive. The only time that's been more expensive than that was the very last six months of the dot-com um, boom when it got to 44. And uh, if you use that Hussman method where he just assumes that your valuation goes back to the long run average valuation over a period of 10 years. And if you use that valuation tool, you get uh, a total return over the next decade of 0.8% per year. And that includes 1.4% in dividends. And so that works out to a negative return on the index of about half a percent or a little bit more than half a percent. So I, I think it's hard to be a passive investor here in the index. And I'd be looking around for a different strategy that had the potential to deliver better returns. I don't know whether you want to be in the meme stocks or the crypto or other stuff like that. I, I think that value probably is a safer, more sensible, surer path to some reasonable prospect of returns over the next decade. It's not that value is so spectacular here. It's just that everything else is so expensive or silly that you kind of by process of elimination, you find yourself, you should find yourself in value. Yeah, we just, we just had Matt Bartolini on the podcast and he, he was basically saying, you know, when you look on an absolute basis and try to find value, you can't, you almost can't find any, you know, but at least when you look on a relative basis, you can find things like value and you can find things like emerging markets. So there are pockets on a relative basis, but on an absolute basis, everything looks a, looks a little difficult right now. I think there's some stuff on an absolute basis. I think you can definitely look around and find stuff that will deliver a, a reasonable return over a day. I mean, it's, every, I don't know what everybody's return expectations are. So it's, I think you've got to be, you know, in a world where the 10 years at 1.2% and the index is set to deliver 0.8% for the next decade, you know, you've got to temper your return expectations a little bit. If you can get multiple times that kind of return baked into the stock, you know, and I, I'm, the sort of stuff that I buy is very conservative, uh, boring old businesses that just every year grow a little bit and throw off a bit of cash and management does the right thing and buys back stock. So on a, on a per share basis, the intrinsic value is compounding up and it should look pretty good over a period of time. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be, I, th I think that anything sort of north of 10% compound from here would be an absolutely spectacular result for the next, for the next decade. Uh, and that's you know that's much much better than you're getting in the ten year or the or the index. So maybe they're just the, the return expectations are a little bit higher than mine. And also to, to contradict myself a little bit, like when we look at absolute valuations for value, it actually has gotten a lot better recently because two things have been going on. One is the earnings side of it has been getting much better coming out of the pandemic. And the other thing is values had this little blip in the last couple of months where it's been going down. So, you know, the, it, actually the absolute valuations have gotten better. I mean, they're, they're maybe average or below average now where they were gotten a little expensive. And obviously the relative ones are off the charts right now. That was the most depressing thing, right? When we were looking back a year or so ago, when values underperformed by so much, but it was still historically, like any, any sort of decile portfolio, pick a, pick a, a ratio, 
price to sales, price to earnings, price to book, price to cash flow, whatever you want to look at. It was still historically pretty expensive. It was just relative to the most expensive stuff. It looked cheap. So that's why I, I favored the long short portfolio because I thought it's probably a reasonable argument to made that value backed off through that period, which you know it did, unfortunately, in spectacular fashion. And it just didn't take down the most expensive stuff in the market, which seems to get even more expensive through that period of time. I'd love to know what the trick is for getting that kind of speculation into your portfolio because I want to buy that portfolio and then have the speculation come in. It, you know, it. I, I think that the value portfolios do look pretty good here, about as good as um, they've looked on a relative basis and still pretty exciting on an absolute basis. So I, 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 I'm a, I think that value is going to do well from here. I want to shift gears and ask you about your podcast because, you know, in many ways, it was, it's the inspiration for what we're doing here. I mean, we modeled a lot of what we're doing um, after what you're doing. And I think, what are you, at a couple of years now you've been running it? Yeah, probably two and a half now, I think. And when you look back at those two and a half years, what do you think, I mean, what do you think it was relative to what you expected it to be? I mean, what have you learned? What have you think have been the positives and the negatives as you look back at doing a podcast for that long? I had no expectations, really. I just, you know, the part of the problem with having a fund that is are regulated by the SEC and FINRA is that you can't talk about tickers or the fund um, without getting what what you say approved by the uh, you know approved, which is an expensive process. Every time you want to get a little bit of marketing approved, it's fifteen hundred dollars to two and a half thousand dollars, and that's sort of unavoidable. So my strategy was just to I'll go out and talk about value and. Uh, if folks like that argument, then they'll probably find their way to the stuff that I do. And I think that that worked. I really, you know, it's, I, f I forget who said it, but somebody said, you know, I, I, half of all of my advertising dollars are, uh, are wasted. I just don't know which half. And I kind of feel like that with, with this stuff, like I, I, it seems to all be working, even though I can't really point to what it is about it that's working other than I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in, I, I think that value is sort of a, a logically sound process and I can describe that logically sound process to other people and I think that they tend to agree with what I'm what I'm saying for the most part and so I think that that has been a good it's a good vehicle for talking to lots and lots of people about that stuff and so I'm an advocate for folks who in any kind of business should set up a little podcast and talk about what it is that they do I, I think that it uh, you know, it, it grew pretty quickly initially because I already had a pretty good Twitter following and I think that, that converted into the podcast and, and I think they're both self-reinforcing and have worked really well. It's been uh, a very positive thing from my perspective, just getting to know other people in the industry, um, which has been great. I've built a great network of folks um, because I've done a hundred and something interviews at this stage plus this other value after hours, which is just a more casual chat with two value guys. And that's been good because we have different perspectives. You know, Jake Taylor, who's one of my co-hosts, is just an old school discretionary value investor, very careful, very wise kind of bloke. And uh, the other guy is Bill Brewster, who is, uh, he's a value investor who's, he, he sort of sits somewhere between special situations, but he does some growthier stuff too, and he's also discretionary. So it's good to talk to two guys who just have different perspectives and don't accept everything that the value guy says, you know, my kind of deep value style, they push back. And that's been good for me. I've sort of grown as a result and talking to other people who are growthier value investors. I've, I've taken some of the best ideas and recombined it into my 
own process. And so I think all of that's been very positive. So it forces this sort of one hour of sitting down with a smart fundamental value investor where I talk to them, listen to what they have to say, hear where they sort of disagree with what I think and then fold that back into my own process. So I, I'm a, there's, there's no downside to it whatsoever. I, I'm a huge fan of, of the whole process and I'd, I'd recommend it for anybody who's, who's trying to sort of build a little business and learn something. This is sort of a selfish question for me because we're, we're learning, to, uh, trying to get better at what we're doing right now, which is basically conducting interviews and you do a great job with it. And I'm wondering what you've learned over the period of doing that. Is there anything you've learned about how to do a better interview, how to set it up in advance, you know, anything like that about how you prepare that, that you've learned about being a better interviewer through the two and a half years you've done it? I've got a very simple uh, uh, sort of question process that I go through, which I think would be something like what an allocator would do if they sat down with a fund manager to learn about the fund manager, you know, describe, describe what it is that you do, describe how that's different from everybody else. How do you think about portfolios, rebalancing, cutting, trimming, adding, um, you know, what are the sort of drivers of the returns? And so that, that process, I think, is one size fits all almost. And then the smartest thing that I have, you know, I, I was, a, I've been, a, I was an attorney before I was a, an investor and I did, it's not uncommon to do interview, you know, that's how you get the facts from someone, describe what it is that we're trying to do here, whether you're doing back-end litigation or front-end contract work or looking to list a company, we're still extracting information. I need the other person talking and telling me what what's happening. So that's that's been, I, I think I've taken that process into this and then that has been quite effective. So, you know, I, the, I, I always say at the start of my interviews, you know, if, if I ask you a question at the start and you just answer for an hour and at the end I say, thank you very much, that's kind of my ideal podcast. So don't, you know, I always said, don't do the CNBC thing where it's like you've got 15 seconds and then we're going to cut to an ad break. So tell us what you really think in as flowery language as you possibly can, because I don't have enough questions to get an hour out if you're going to do it like that. You know, you got to, I don't want to extract it bit by bit, like tell the story. So I think that that connects with people too. Like the people want to hear, people want to hear everybody's story. I want to hear other people's stories. I assume that everybody else wants to hear them too. That's, that's worked really well. It was funny because one of our first interviews we did was Jim O'Shaughnessy. And, uh, you know, he, he has so many great things to say that, you know, when you do an interview with Jim, you need probably four to five questions to get through the hour. Um, and then he'll cover, he'll take care of the rest of it. So for us not having any idea what we're doing, you know, that was a great way. That was a great person to bring on towards the beginning. Yeah, Jim's great. I, I did the same thing. I started, I, I always start the recorder. And then I just said, how are you, Jim? Something like that. And then he started going and like literally 25 minutes in, I said, well, I think we've recorded the first 25 minutes. Let's just keep going worked well it's a lot less editing too because the way we do it i kind of cut to the each person that's talking rather than have it like automatically do it so when someone has you know just can go on four or five questions there's a lot less of an opportunity for me to screw up the uh the editing process <laughs> just one more on the podcast i want to ask you what have you found works best in terms of giving people in advance so we've tried different things we've tried telling them nothing about what we're going to ask we tried doing an outline about what we're going to ask we tried giving them actual like detailed questions we were going to ask I'm wondering what of those do you do and what do you think maybe works best in terms of getting a good interview? I try to tell them what we're going to talk about in very broad terms or what I'm interested in in very broad terms. And that's basically the same for each person. I want to know about you know the strategy, how you got started, what's your philosophy and like the, the, the tactical questions of managing the portfolio. And then I have a handful of questions that I ask. 
but I find that that helps me because it forces me to listen to what they're saying. Because this is, you know, for folks who haven't done, sometimes it's a, the first few times that you're doing it is a very odd thing to be doing. It feels uh, like there's a lot of distraction. You've got to be talking to, you're talking to a computer. There's lots of stuff going on. And it's just hard to focus in on what somebody's saying. And so by having a much broader outline and very open-ended questions, I find that, that gives me the um, the flexibility to dig down to something that's a little bit unexpected or different, and that just makes it a more free-flowing conversation. I should say that I'm no expert in interviewing, and I, I often go back and cringe when I hear it because I, I hear them say something that I just didn't hear the first time around. And I thought that would have been a good thing to follow up on. You, if you if you hadn't been like checking the sound levels or doing something else, you probably would have heard that. So that's that's my advice. Like try, which is like great philosophical life advice. You know, like try to stay a little bit more in the moment and listen to what the person's saying before you like charge on in with your next canned question. You know. Yeah, we, we found the same thing. You know, we're so focused on all the logistics of doing this and preparing for the next thing we got to cover. And, you know, a lot of times you get lost in that and you listen back and I'm like, wow, I, I actually, by listening back to our own interviews, like I learned a bunch of stuff that I didn't learn when I was actually doing the interview because I was focused on so much other stuff at the same time. You got to watch the tape. You got to go back and watch tape. Um, I want to shift and ask you about the market. You know, you, you alluded to meme stocks before. And, you know, one of the things I struggle with right now is this whole idea of, you know, people always say this time is different and usually it's not different. But there are a lot of things going on right now where this time might be a little bit different. And I want to go through some of them with you and, and have you maybe give your opinion on whether you think that's actually true. Um, and, and the first one is this whole idea that, and you know, this is sort of shifted a little bit after the pandemic, but this whole idea of the rise of passive investing. Um, I mean, do you think as, as those of us that are active investors, do you think there's anything we need to worry about with that? Anything we need to change about our approach because of this rise of passive investing? That's the Michael Green argument that, um, the passive flows eventually overwhelm the act. So the, the function of an active manager is to sort of push things that are out of equilibrium back into equilibrium by buying stuff that gets too cheap, selling stuff that gets too expensive. And the index funds are, um, they're agnostic to valuation. All that they're investing on is, their, their basis for investing is the, the absolute size of the company. So the bigger companies attract the most flows which on a, on a float adjusted basis. And then that pushes up the biggest companies the most and makes the smaller companies, um, you know, they, they, they tend to be starved of capital. If you're outside the index, that makes, that makes it even worse. I, I, I've never really been able to fully understand Michael's argument. And I've, I, he's, he's, I've seen him explain it lots of times and I've, I've seen it. I don't know what is the difference between what he is saying about this current time and what has happened in every other time in the past, which is that folks follow whatever has been working. The S&P 500 is the best performed index in the world. Every other world's index has fallen over. The US has been very strong. That index has been very good. We've gone through a period of time where unusually the biggest companies in the market have sort of defied these historical base rates for growth at a very large scale. So Amazon last year on $100 billion put up a 48% year on year comp, which is just an astonishing rate of growth for an already enormous company. Google's doing the same thing. Apple's doing the same thing. Facebook seems to have sustained its growth rates. All, all of these companies are really doing unusual things. And they make up the bulk of the index. They attract a lot of the capital. And I don't see necessarily... 
um, why that's wrong. I think that if anything, those bigger companies are slightly undervalued um, or at least fairly valued relative to the racier tech stuff in the market, which seems to be nosebleed expensive to me. Uh, you know, as a as a value investor, I, I can't help but feel that it's a good thing to have distortions in the market. And I don't understand why it's a bad thing for me as an active value investor. If the market was perfectly valid, uh, valued and the, market, the money was going where it should go, I'd have nothing to do because there'd be no opportunity. But as it is at the moment, there's plenty of opportunity around. There's dislocations everywhere. And that's, that's sort of how we make our money. We don't care so much about what the stock price is doing. What I'm trying to do is on those very rare occasions where pretty good companies get cheap enough and I can, with some sort of margin of safety built into it, I can see where those earnings, you know, consistent earning growers, where those are going to be in five or 10 years time based on what's happened in the last five or 10 years. And there's a point where for whatever reason, the market just gets a little bit upset with the company it happens all the time it happens to happens to apple happens to google it happened to apple and buffett came in and dropped 50 billion dollars in it and got a triple inside like 12 months which i still say is the greatest trade ever which is amazing for a 90 year old bloke to be you know slinging it around like that in such a gigantic company so if buffett can find those opportunities with his you know he's got there aren't very many things that move the needle for him if he can find it with his enormous capital stack then um you know, I, I, I can't believe that uh, me with my much smaller capital stack can't find many, many more opportunities for doing stuff. And, and I think that I can. And I, I, I hope that this uh, distortion continues in the market. I hope it continues on. And I hope that I'm able to just go around picking the pockets of the ones that fall out. Falls out of the index. I'll buy it. I don't mind. The, the other thing people have been pointing to is this whole rise of fiscal stimulus. So, you know, we've had monetary stimulus for a long time, but now we've started writing checks and putting them in people's hands. And the question is, what does that mean for us as investors? Does that change the dynamic of the market? Does it change the types of stocks we should be buying? Because it seems like once they've started this, it doesn't seem like this is something they're easily going to stop. I mean, you'd think the next, when the next recession comes, we're going to be writing some more checks. So how do you think this changes the dynamics of the market? Again, I, I think that it's likely that we're going to be writing checks in the next one. And I just don't think you can shut down the economy and tell everybody to stay home and then not give them some money to buy food and, and shelter. It seems that if you're going to create a problem, then you have to be also coming up with a solution. And so that I think that that's what they did and that was appropriate at the time. Um, in retrospect, it looks like uh, that created a lot more, I don't know if it's savings or excess cash or what the, what, how, you, how you describe it, but... It seemed to be a lot more money than, than people had ordinarily in one go, and a, a lot of that got tipped into the market in a speculative fashion. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't offend me to see other people making money in the stock market. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm, I wish them all the very best of luck. And that, that's including guys who are running funds who are, who are you know, much better at assessing the opportunity in the tech stuff. And there are some companies that I wouldn't touch that have gone up 10 times that I just don't understand them. And I, I will never, or I'm not never, but I'm not, I don't understand them at the moment. Or I can't forecast where the earnings are going to go with any sort of reasonable degree of um, certainty over the three to five years, which is what I'm typically trying to do. I just, I'm happy for everybody else to run their own race. And I, I've, got, I've got my race to run, which is just to try and buy these things cheaply. I hope that the market is full of distortions forever and ever, because if it's not, then it's going to be a sad day for we value investors. We won't have anything to do. The last thing I want to ask you about is this idea of narratives and fundamentals. You know, you, there's the famous Graham quote, which Justin has told me was not really a Graham quote about the, the weighing machine versus the vote. 
Is it not? Right. He was, Buffett kind of took the quote and basically said, you know, in the short run, it's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. But Graham basically was saying it's always a voting machine. Yeah, or like it's a voting machine that sometimes cares about fundamentals, depending on, you know, if it's voting based on fundamentals at any given time. But that's what I want to ask you about is, you know, there's this whole idea that maybe we're in more of a narrative driven market and maybe the voting is more important now. And maybe, you know, concepts we've, we've relied on as value investors, things like mean reversion are taking a lot longer to happen than they used to. We're getting more voting for longer periods of time. I mean, do you think there's some, some merit to that? Do you think that in any way affects sort of the way we should manage money? I, I agree that that is happening in the market. And I definitely agree that that is creating distortions in the market. But again, it's just I love anything that's a, that, that puts a distortion into the market. I don't care if it pushes it up or down, because I think that the job of a security analysis analyst has always been to go and look at the underlying truth of the matter and try and figure out, you know, for the very vast majority of things that are, they're just not far enough away from some underlying assessment of value that you can get. Any, there's no margin of safety in, in very vast majority of things. Very, very occasionally you find something that's on the, um, you know, on the wings of the distribution one way or the other. And it's just so egregiously undervalued or overvalued that I think that you, you're paid to put a position on whether you're right or not. And I think my historical hit rate is like 50%, but it's not so much whether you're right or wrong. It's the magnitude that you win when you're right versus the magnitude that you lose when you're wrong. And one of the advantages of being in stuff that's got pretty strong balance sheets, and, you know, reasonable track record of earnings is that the, and they've already fallen out of bed, you know, they're already sick men when, when I'm buying them or they look like sick men is that they will have a period of time where they, uh, they either win or they lose. And if they win, they sort of win so much that you do okay. And if they lose, you lose a little bit. And that's, that's that sort of asymmetric uh, return profile that we're trying to find in the market. I, 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 in the short term, it makes it hard because, you know, I would love the stuff that I buy to go up straight away and to make me look really smart in the short term. But I think in the longer term, I'm still trying to do, and, it, and it's helpful like to go through all of this stuff because I get caught up in it too, but I, it's helpful to step back every now and again and just rethink about what we're trying to do. Like I would, it wouldn't, you know, Buffett has that line about it wouldn't matter to me if the stock market shut down for a period of three or five years. I'd still be comfortable in the stuff that I hold. And at the time that he used to say that, I just, I didn't get it. But now I kind of feel that way. I don't really mind. I'm, I want to hold stuff that I, I can come up with a valuation where I have two valuation. Every time I do these things, I look three to three years out and five years out and I discount them both. And I think if we can deliver... If this company can keep on doing what it's been doing for the next three to five years, get a little bit of mean reversion maybe, and you know, I think it's more likely that it's up than it's down because it's closer to the bottom of its business cycle. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes it's, you know, it really is Google's eating this thing's lunch. They're not making any money anymore. They can't make money. It's all over. And I put that position on and, and you lose money in it. In other instances, it's just, it's, the, it's a normal business cycle and it goes back and then, and then everybody remembers that it's a really good business underlying with a really good management team and it does very well. And that's kind of the way that it always has been. And I think that it's the way that it always will be. So I welcome distortion, however it occurs, whether it's from flows or narratives or memes, I, I don't mind. I think it's good for us. Yeah, just going back to that quote thing for a second. So th that's the one thing. They, they can't find the exact source for where Graham said in the short run, it's a 
in the short run, the market's a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. That's really taken from, it looks like like a 1993 Buffett letter, but in security analysis, what Graham said is, those who view the market as a weighing machine, a precise and efficient assessor of value, are part of the emotionally driven herd. Those who regard the market as a voting machine, a sentiment driven popularity contest, will be well positioned to take proper advantage of the extremes of market sentiment. So I think what Graham, the original concept there was, you know, Graham knew that the markets could be driven largely by psychology in the short run and value investors needed to be prepared to take advantage of that. So I, I think Buffett kind of kind of took that and just, I mean, what Buffett is saying, I think is, is still right, but I don't think it's, it's, you can't tie it back to something Graham said exactly. It's also possible that Graham said it to him directly because uh, he wasn't he wasn't like us reading it in a secondary source. He was talking to the man himself. I I, I tend to agree um, with that sentiment. I, I think that there is. I think you can look even on Twitter. There are some guys on Twitter. There's a very small handful of guys on Twitter who are playing this game at a very very high level. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I'm part of that group at all. I'm just just to be very clear here. I'm talk, there are a handful of guys who I think play at a very high level, and they're not so much talking about valuation because it's sort of a given that this thing has to be able to deliver a certain level of return. Their analysis is all on, you know, the market forces. What's driving the share price down? Is it somebody bailing out because they have have margin calls somewhere else, or is it some sort of purely technical, you know? There's some weird option expiration, something funny going on or some warrant. There's a transaction. And there are guys who understand these things intimately. And when they see those dislocations, they make money from those dislocations. And I kind of want to get more to that point than uh, than sort of being subject to it. And I think that there are various things that you can do to be closer to the stuff that's worth owning and not further away from the stuff that everybody kind of has figured out that you shouldn't own. Even as a deep value guy, I think that, that that's a slightly better way of running the portfolio. So I, it, it's very, very hard to do that. So I agree with the sentiment um, 100%. I just acknowledge that it's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Let's um, bookend this with a couple sort of uh, questions going back to your real, I guess, circle of competence, which is value investing. And I wanted to um, just ask you about some of your thoughts on sort of value and quality. I mean, one of the things that sort of we're seeing within our own data is, you know, like quality stocks that are also value stocks have some degree of attractiveness from a value standpoint. They've become cheaper sort of on a relative basis. Um, and I know you've done some work and looked at Greenblatt's magic formula and looked at, you know, whether it worked better with just value or quality. Um, and I think you found that just the pure deep value sort of model was maybe superior on a long-term uh, performance basis. but. I just wanted to kind of get your sense on, do you, I mean, it seems like some of your holdings do have a quality component. So what's your view on, you know, integrating sort of quality in and then how, if you do do any of that, how do you just generally um, define that for the companies that you look at and own? The very specific example that I give in uh, the book, Deep Value and in Acquirers Multiple is that the, um, the magic formula which I commend Greenblatt for the way that he put that together. He said, this is the way that in a very, very simple analysis, this is the way Buffett invests. He looks for it cheap on an earnings yield basis, which he defined as EBIT on enterprise value. And then he said he looks for quality on a return on invested capital basis. 
uh, and he had a little quantitative calculation of that. And he said, if you just naively rank every single stock in the market on both of those factors and then sum the combined rankings and you put together a portfolio, it does pretty well. And it has the added benefit of it does well in a value market and it does well in a frothier market, even though you know the, the quality holds you back in a value market and the value holds you back a little bit in the quality market. You're not going to lose your job. You're going to stay sort of within shouting distance. And I just it had been my experience partially because I'm Australian, so the market just tends to be full of junkier cyclical miners and things like that, that I had seen a lot of companies that looked really good on a financial statement basis fall apart because the underlying is a commodity. The commodity is very, very sensitive to the commodity price. If it goes down, all of a sudden, the business doesn't look so strong. So I did some analysis of it, and it turns out that you're better off just being in the value portion of the um, of that analysis and that the return on invested capital doesn't really add much. If anything, it slightly detracts from your returns. And it may add something in that I just described. It helps you keep up with the market in certain periods of time. And it may keep you out of value traps, although it doesn't seem to uh, from my sort of um, analysis of it. I have a different definition of value, which is not so, uh, sorry, a different definition of quality, which is not so much what is the return on invested capital of the company, but does it convert its operating earnings into cash flow? Does it then use that cash flow to build a pretty strong balance sheet? Are they buying back stock? And I think that that definition, that many of those features are in the quality factor. The, the quality factor is, I don't think there's any, nobody's really agreed on what the quality factor is, but it's many sort of different things about balance sheet health, business health, and one of them is that return on invested capital, which I, I think, you know, if you can find a good business that can has sustained its return on invested capital, that is a high quality business and you should own that business. But for the most part, it's very, that sustainability of return on invested capital seems to be very, very hard to predict. And I think that if you introduce it naively into your portfolio, it just tends to reduce returns a little bit. And if you just get rid of that error factor, you tend to do a little bit better again. So my portfolio is... They may score reasonably high on a return on invested capital basis, but that is really an accident. It's not something that I'm seeking. That's like a side effect of what, what happens when you look for other things like cash conversion and um, you know ability to buy back stock or pay down debt or, or, or things like that. So I think that it does score reasonably high on the value f on on the quality factor. I mean that's when I when I look at any sort of external analysis of my portfolio. So I think Morningstar does it, and a few other uh, firms break down what your factor profile is. I, they, they they always score very high on value, of course, but the second factor is quality, and it's just my definition of quality, which is that cash flow conversion and other factors like that. So I'm, a, I'm an advocate of quality, but I've always thought that it was sort of quality in the context of value, not just pure. I've never thought of value as purely being a, a ratio, uh, even though I use the acquirer's multiple as sort of my flagship thing. I've never really thought of it as that alone. Of course, you need other factors in there to, to determine that you actually have some value, some intrinsic value there. So that's what I think of. I'm trying to buy a, intrinsic value at a discount to what it's worth uh sort of i don't really mind how the factor profile of that falls out because i think about it like a value guy rather than as a factor quant yeah that you know it's funny because we had um rafael resendez from applied finance on the podcast and he 
he kind of was talking. I mean, they're big intrinsic value guys, so they they're trying to you know find stocks that trade below the intrinsic value, looking at the um, you know the earnings of the company, the return on invested capital, whether or not that return can you know stay at that level, how competition might erode that over time. Um, and you know they they have a very good track record, um, and he's kind of you know making the argument that these traditional value metrics, especially price to book, if you're a value investor, you know you're missing something here, um, and it, it's sort of line. It's it's not exactly what you just said, but it, it does sort of align more. And if you look at their portfolio, it's it's definitely more quality, and they've even got some growth names in there because for them, if they can find a company, you know, if a company is growing at 25, I don't know, 25% a year, you know, but their intrinsic value estimate, and they've been running intrinsic value in real time since like 1999 on like US stocks. So they have, you know, over 20 years of point in time data on their intrinsic value scores. And and so it's it's interesting, it just kind of aligns, some, some of the, those concepts that he talked about sort of are aligning with what you're talking about, even though you're talking about like kind of quality more, um, but intrinsic value sort of embedded in there. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I just don't think really you can do it any other way. I don't know a single value investor who describes themselves as a price to book value investor. I don't know like that. Possibly they've all just gone out of the market because it's been so hard to make money as a price to book value investor. It's one of the funniest things that every time you sort of try to come, I want to, I, I'm a, I, I try to be as systematic as possible to eliminate behavioral errors, but that doesn't mean that I lean on the value factor, which is literally price to book for the obvious reasons that there are problems with accounting. You know, you look at the, everybody knows, you look at the software companies that they just deal with, um, you know, they tend to, they tend to expense their capital um, that they they invest into because it's all intellectual property rather than fixed assets, and so that gets expensed. And then you know then they've often that that, that flatters uh, the other companies to the tune of about fifteen percent a year. But then they they tend to pay a lot more in options grants, which um, makes them look fifteen percent better than they otherwise are. So I think it comes out in the wash. I don't mind price to book as a concept. I mean, it's sort of, it, it makes sense to me that the reason that it's used is that on a quarter to quarter or reporting period to reporting period basis, it tends to be less volatile. So you can, you got a better idea. And if you're, if you're a believer in a business cycle, which I am, even though we haven't seen one for a really long period of time, it makes sense that things that are under earning on an asset basis at the bottom of their cycle will do better when they earn a little bit more. Sometimes I think that the destruction of price to book as a factor is just by virtue of the fact that it's picked up energy and miners and other heavy industries that just haven't done very well for a decade. And so people say, well, that's a bullshit. That's a bullshit metric. It doesn't work very well because look, the flow metrics have all done really well. And I've said that too in the past, but you know, there's, it could easily be the case that all of a sudden all that heavy industry starts working again. Price to book starts looking really good. Everybody's everybody forgets that they ha were hating on price to book, and we're all back into price to book. It's it's just situational, and I don't think you can be too you don't want to be too wedded to the factor or the the metric. You're still ultimately trying to figure out the truth of this situation, what, whatever uh, the situation is. It could I think it could easily be the case that energy and miners have a really good run here and tech looks a little bit dumb and then in 10 years time we'll wind forward and everybody will say i can't believe that we were as uncool as to be tech investors in you know that second decade of the millennium 
mean, clearly you wanted to be in this commodity super cycle in the third decade of the millennium. And I hope that I have the, the, the presence of mind at that point to be just fully invested in tech and ready to roll. I want to ask you, you know, you, we referenced spreads earlier and we referenced how the spread is very wide between growth and value. And, you know, one of the mistakes I made in my career is in 2014, 2015, I thought it was actually a good time to buy value. You know, value done poorly in 14, it had done poorly in 15. You know, I thought it was actually attractive. But then when I learned more about these spreads, I realized, well, spreads were actually pretty narrow and growth was actually attractive then. And I'm wondering if that happens again, how do we think about that as a value investor? So, you know, right now, obviously, we think value is attractive. We want to buy value companies. What do we do if it narrows again? I mean, do we buy growth now that we know that? How do you think about sort of navigating that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's the, the single thing that I beat myself up on most too, because I had the conversation. I, I wrote it on my blog, Jake Taylor, my podcast co-host. Um, we had this conversation in real time in 2015 on exactly that. We had this conversation and I said, value is so beaten up. I think it's a really good time to be a value investor. And he said, the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued is as narrow as it has been in 25 years. And he wrote an article about it and I posted it on Greenback and then just didn't think through the implications of that. I just thought, well, value's evergreen, value will be okay. What I should have done at that point is realize that there were these very, very good high growth companies that were likely to become dominant available at the same price that you could pay for these cyclicals and heavy industry. And I should have had some... Uh, means of identifying the better companies at a slightly, you know, an optically higher, just at a higher price ratio. And so that's, you know, I figured out that that was a mistake in about 2018 or 19. And so I've sort of spent that period since trying to get a little bit better at uh, identifying the, the better quality stuff, the higher growing stuff, the faster growing stuff. You know, you could do it as simply as just looking at the spread. And if it gets really tight, then you probably want to be in the better stuff. It would be, that, that's sort of, that's one approach. And I, I will certainly use that. I keep an eye on it to make sure that I'm, if that opportunity presents, I'll take that opportunity. But I, you, you, a better process than that would be to build it into the, the valuation process so that you, you don't really have to have any conscious decision at the time. You just, when that happens it's just the portfolio just naturally transitions into those better companies so that's the, that's what i've been trying to do and i'm writing i'm writing a book now that's um torturous and it's going to take bloody ages to get out but uh hopefully and it's 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 much more abstract than literally describing this process but i i do think that it's it that's the that's the that's the challenge uh particularly for for value guys who've been burned through this last sort of five or ten years to to get positioned for the next transition. I think that the the correct place to be now is in deep value, funnily enough. Like it's it's so beaten up that this is where you should be. But that's only going to persist for five or 10 years. There will be another transition period. And, and it, maybe it's faster than that. Maybe the world just moves faster and you need to be in a position to take advantage of it. So it's the key to unlocking the next five, 10, 20 years. I don't know if I've fully solved it yet, but I'm, that's what I'm working on. You, you let me know if you figure it out, Jack. Well, it's interesting, too, because it's not just the spread between value and growth, but also when you look at sort of value and high quality value. And, you know, that's one of the things I think you've alluded to it. But we noticed, too, is, you know, with this whole junk rally, you can get these quality companies for almost the same price as the low quality companies. And so having a process to, to identify that and say, all right, why would I buy this low quality company for the same valuation as this high quality company? That's something we're working on. It's still a work in process in progress, but that's something we're working on as well, because I think that's important as well. The challenge has always been that high growth has tended to fall apart. And so... 
you, you need to, to discount high growth at a higher rate. And maybe that's changed. Maybe the nature of the internet, that network kind of effect means that you're going to get like Google. I don't really know how anybody's going to beat Google. I don't really know how anybody's going to beat Microsoft. My, my wife is a consultant who who deals with um, the, the learning for a big consulting firm. And she said that the, the single course that gets taken more than any other course on a sort of exponential basis is people learning how to use Excel. So Excel is not going away anytime soon. Microsoft is well and truly embedded in the business ecosystem for a really long period of time. So, I, you know, Microsoft's probably bulletproof. Google's probably bulletproof. Apple, you know, less so, but probably still pretty hard to unseat. Facebook, you know, those, they're going to be around for a long time. Funnily enough, I think they're cheapish now, but that, that's the challenge, right? To figure it out. How do you transition away from two things that are maybe ratio expensive, but cheap on an intrinsic value basis? So, Tobe, just before we get to my last cl closing question here, you mentioned um, the book you're working on, and um, it reminded me, I read this article this morning about how people are over-optimistic about making deadlines. <laughs> and um, in 1997, Kahneman was working on a uh, academic, working with a bunch of academics on, on, on an academic book. And he pulled the, uh, all the you know, authors and you know, asked them how long everyone thought it was going to take to write and they thought it was going to take two years it took nine so hopefully hopefully your book comes out before 2030. <laughs> i've been working on it for a long for, i've been kind of i've been chipping on it for like a decade because i there's there's just some fun things that i've seen some little you know and it's it's mostly it's driven more at what does buffett do to it's not so much on the valuation side it's what is because i think this is the key right this is the key to identifying uh, the companies that can grow and sustain those high returns, you have to focus more on the the moat or the competitive advantage, and which is kind of a uh, that that game has been played for a very long period of time. That's that's the uh, you're in the realm of grand strategy when you're talking about that, and that's philosophers have been writing about grand strategy for two and a half thousand years in the Eastern world with Sun Tzu's Art of War, and there are a lot of works. Uh, from the east, where they were they were going through this China as it was being rolled up into China, uh, there were hundreds of these wars between lots of little uh, states, and that er era is known as the uh, the Warring States period. And out of that came China, which was one one group that managed to roll it all up into into China. At the same time, you had on the on the west in Greece, um, you know, you had all of those little Greek states, Greek city-states battling with each other. And they wrote down some of those, uh, their, their, their strategies for survival and their strategies for growing and creating empires and saw those strategies get thwarted. So there's this, there's this very rich history that extends back about two and a half thousand years about how folks have thought about competing and surviving. And I have tried to find the abstraction of that that makes sense in a business context. And that, that's, that's kind of the work. It's, it's taken a lot of time to even like, just to get that ordered in my, my own mind. And now I'm sort of writing, I know now what I'm writing. So the writing is underway and it's, you know, everybody who's ever written anything will tell you that the first draft is absolute garbage. And so I'm, I'm at that point where every time I write something down, I read back over it and it's just total rubbish. So at some point, 
uh, it'll be ready for the outside world, but it's a long way away from that at this point. Sounds like it sounds like a great book, good topic. Um, so yeah, I hope that you kind of can get that good you know, to the finish line at some point. <laughs> um, just so in closing, we want, we have sort of this new closing question. We didn't get to ask you this um, the first time around. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, based on your experiences in the market, um, if you could impart one piece of investing wisdom or teach one lesson to your average individual investor, uh, what would that be? I think you need to write down what you're doing at the time that you do it, because it takes, if you're a fundamental investor, it takes years really to work out whether the decision that you made actually resulted in the outcome that you thought and the only way that you learn is by looking at outcomes against decisions and it's so easy to forget why you did something and really the worst case scenario as funnily as funny as this sounds but the worst case scenario is when you get the stock goes up but for a reason that you didn't identify so you got lucky but then you, you start conflating that luck with some skill. And I think that you need to be intellectually honest with why you did something and you need to recognize those things. You need to recognize the ones that won, but you were wrong. Recognize the ones where you lost money, but you were right. And you need to try to work more towards the process and getting that right than relying on the outcome and deciding that you were right. So that's that's my advice. It's, I've always said this, write it down. Because, you know, I've got stuff now that I wrote down in 2008. I can go back and look at it and I think that's garbage, but I, at least it's there and it's written down and I can see that there's been some evolution over the last, whatever it is, 13 or 14 years. Good stuff. All right. So if people want to kind of just learn more about what you're up to and you're on Twitter and, you know, where can they go to find out more? My fund is the Acquirers Fund, ticker ZIG, and I have a small and micro version of that that's that's long only, which is the Roundhill Acquirers Deep Value Fund, ticker DEEP, deep. And uh, acquirersmultiple.com has a little screener that's free, and that's where we post all of the blog posts, and uh, that's where we put up the podcast and little YouTube clips and things like that. And I'm on Twitter at Greenback. It's a funny spelling, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. I post stuff a few times a day. I'm sort of off a little bit more than I used to be, but I, I still use it to uh, to stay in contact with folks. About you know, in the morning, I post I post some stuff on it, so follow along and interact with me. Great, thanks, Toby. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks, fellas. So good to see you again. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.